We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. WTBN Pinellas Park. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. God has made us holy. God has made us acceptable because of being cleansed by by Jesus Christ the moment we've trusted him. And therefore, we are to present ourselves to him. Now, why do we say that's worship? Because Paul said, as he concluded that statement, that verse, he said, this is your reasonable or your logical service of worship. The word he used for reasonable is is logical. In, In other words, Based on how merciful God has been to you to save you, the only logical thing to do, the only thing that really makes sense is give him yourself. That's worship. We get hung up a lot about the surroundings of worship. We think good worship requires a proper building we call a sanctuary. Many think good worship requires the right clothing, the right formulas, the right songs, the proper time of the week, and many other physical aspects that we seem to make our priority when we talk about worship. We're in a short series about worship right now on Verse by Verse. On today's broadcast, our Bible teacher, Steve Kreloff, is talking about the question of the where of worship. It seems like so many today are debating over the physical side of worship, the where, how, and when, even though God seems much more interested in who we are when we worship. Here's Pastor Steve. When the Apostle Paul found himself in the city of Athens, the book of Acts tells us that something very interesting uh, he observed about the Athenians. He observed that the citizens of Athens worshipped a plurality of gods. They were not monotheistic. They worshipped many deities. In fact, he noticed that they were so religious and, and so passionate about the worship of these various deities that they feared that in their zeal they might have overlooked some god. And so... They didn't know that there might be some God that they were not aware of, so they they built an inscription that said to the unknown God, and an an altar with an inscription on it to the unknown God. In in other words, the thought is just in case that they missed worshiping some deity they weren't aware of, they didn't want to be the recipients of his wrath. So they wanted to cover themselves. They wanted to make sure that they're taken care of. So they worship one. They said, well, we don't know who he is, so let's call him the unknown God. And the Apostle Paul seized upon their ignorance to tell them that they were off base in their worship. Their worship was unacceptable because it was, it was based upon ignorance. But he could tell them the truth about this unknown God. Here's the way Paul put it in the book of Acts. He said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. See, what Paul did was reveal to the Athenians that their worship was unacceptable because it was based upon ignorance rather than truth. 
Now, what Paul told these people 2,000 years ago is still quite relevant to us. You and I are not Athenian philosophers, but we still could be guilty of unacceptable worship. Even as a believer in Christ, your worship may not be what it should be. Now, last week, we began to study a... Uh, do a series on the on the very broad biblical subject of worshiping God. And uh, we began by looking at two issues, basically two questions. Question number one that we looked at last week was, what does it mean to worship God? When all is said and done, what do, what do we mean by that? And we said at that time, we said last week that what it boils down to is what Romans chapter 12, verse 1 tells us. Paul says, based on how merciful God has been to you to lift you up, from being a condemned sinner and to give you a salvation that is secure and so wonderful, a salvation that you can have peace with God and you are justified and all that goes with it. Based on God's mercies, there's one thing that God wants you to do, and that's worship him by presenting yourselves as a living sacrifice. He said, holy, acceptable. God has made us holy. God has made us acceptable because of being cleansed by, by Jesus Christ the moment we've trusted him. And therefore, we are to present ourselves to him. Now, why do we say that's worship? Because Paul said, as he concluded that statement, that verse, he said, this is your reasonable or your logical service of worship. The word he used for reasonable is, is logical. In, in other words, based on how merciful God has been to you to save you, the only logical thing to do, the only thing that really makes sense is give him yourself. That's worship. And worship basically can be reduced to the concept of giving. It's not getting anything from God. It is giving to him. We give ourselves, we present ourselves to him. We say, Lord, here am I. You have everything that, that is mine. You have me. And when God has you, we will worship him as we adore him, as we praise him, as we obey, as we reverence him, as, as we admire him, as we honor him, we'll give him all of our possessions, everything. Once he has us on the altar, he has everything that goes with us. That's what it means to worship God. Present yourselves a living sacrifice. God doesn't want dead animals. He wants you, me, to be living sacrifices. So that's what it means to worship God. Secondly, we ask this question, why is it so important that we worship God? After all, you're, you're never going to lose your salvation. You're going to go to heaven regardless of whether you worship him or not. But why? Why worship God? The answer is very simple. It's because he's worthy of our worship. He delights in our worship. Basically, it's because God wants you to worship him. He doesn't need our worship. He is the totally sufficient God. When Moses asked, asked God, who shall I say sent me to the, to the Egyptians, to Pharaoh, he said, you tell him I am that I am. God has always been. God does not need your worship. God does not need my worship, but he wants it. He desires it. It pleases him. He derives pleasure from it. And we said it is so important to the Lord that we worship him that John chapter 4 tells us that, that Jesus, rather going around Samaria, which was hostile territory to Jewish people in the first century, Jesus went from Judea in the south up to Galilee in the north. He went through Samaria. Why? Because he was seeking a Samaritan woman and those in her village to make them true worshipers. It was so important to Jesus that people worship God, that he went to Samaria to seek 
a Samaritan woman to be a true worshiper of God. So it's important to God, and therefore it ought to be important to us. Now this morning, we want to look at another issue that is critical to worshiping God, and it's this. How can we be sure that our worship is acceptable to him? After all, we don't want to be like the Athenian philosophers who, though they were zealous to worship, they didn't do it right. They, they did not have proper worship. They did it out of ignorance, and therefore their worship was just a bunch of wasted time and energy. It was totally unacceptable. So we want to explore this morning this question. What is acceptable worship? This is how you evaluate whether your worship is acceptable. And the classic passage in the Bible that specifically addresses how to worship God in a way that, that he defines as acceptable I'm not defining it this way. He is. That is found in John chapter 4. So let's turn to John chapter 4. That's the classic passage. I told you last week that we would get uh, into this chapter a little bit more in weeks to come, and uh, now is the time. John chapter 4. Now, we touched upon it last week. We discovered, as I said, that Jesus revealed that worship is so important to God that he actually seeks us to become his worshipers. And of course, you understand that no one seeks after God. If left to ourselves, we would continue our own merry way. God seeks us. Now, the point, I must tell you, the point of this chapter is that Jesus set out to reveal himself as the Messiah to this Samaritan woman. In fact, we know that's the point of this chapter. Later on, he will uh, say to her, I who speak to you am the Messiah. But that is consistent with the entire Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, John tells us at the end of his Gospel, is written for this explicit purpose. He said, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So each of the chapters is designed really to present Jesus Christ to us as Messiah and full deity. And that's, that's what John chapter 4 is about. However, in the process, though, of doing this, the Lord addressed some very key issues about what is false worship and what is true worship. Now, let me set the scene for you. The story begins by telling us, as I, as I told you a few moments ago, that Jesus and his disciples were on their way from the south in Israel, Judea, up to the northern part known as the Galilee. And they had now, they, they had gone through a Samar the Samaritan region, by the way, known today when you hear in current events known as the West Bank. The West Bank is actually biblical Judea and Samaria. But he was going on his way there, and they, they went through the region of Samaria, and he stopped there for a while near a town, near a town in Samaria. Now, why did he stop there? The Bible tells us that he was tired, the disciples were tired, and they were hungry. Remember, Jesus is not only fully God, but he's fully man. And um, all the physical limitations that you and I have, he had. He got tired, he needed to eat, and things of that nature. Now, the story goes on to tell us that while Jesus was resting by a well, actually known as Jacob's well, his disciples went into town to purchase some food. So he's, he's alone by himself, he's sitting there, he's resting by a well, and uh, a Samaritan woman comes out of the town to draw some water from this well, and it's at that point that Jesus asks her for a drink of water. Chapter 4, verse 7, we'll pick it up right there. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, 
That's a, a simple enough request. It doesn't appear to us to be an odd request, yet I want you to know that in first century Israel, it was a breach of social etiquette for a Jewish man to speak to a woman in public, especially a Jewish rabbi, of which Jesus was an official teacher. Not only that, it cut across the animosity and the prejudice that existed at that time between Jews and Samaritans. I I touched on this last week, but let's think a little bit more about it. Notice verse 9. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? And then John, the Apostle John, gives us an editorial comment. He said, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, let me explain. The reason that Jewish people had a problem with Samaritans went back to Old Testament times. During uh, about 700 B.C., uh, many of the Jewish people were transported from Israel to Assyria. And uh, while they were in Assyria, uh, they intermarried with pagans and they came back to the lands of Israel. And basically what you had is a group now, a mixture of Jewish people and, and pagan people, and they formed a new people called the Samaritans, the Samaritans. And they, they lived in the area known as Samaria and they were Samaritans. As a people, Samaritans did not practice Judaism, did not practice fully Judaism, I should say that. They rejected most of the Old Testament and established their own unique religious system, which, I should add, combined some biblical truth but rejected most of it. They established their worship not at Jerusalem where the Jewish people worshiped the Lord in the temple area, but they established their worship on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. They rejected all of the Old Testament except the first five books of the Old Testament, the the law, the Torah, the five books of Moses. And as a result, the Jewish people considered Samaritans as pagan and heretical. And, and as a result, there was a great deal of ethnic and religious and cultural tension that existed between the two groups. But in spite of these tensions, Jesus just cut across what was socially unacceptable behavior and spoke to this woman about giving him a drink. Now, why did he do that? Well, two reasons. The obvious one is because he was thirsty. That's the only reason he asked for a drink. But it didn't stop there. Primarily, he asked for a drink because he wanted to engage this this lost woman in a conversation about her need for eternal life. He was really evangelizing her, starting with something that would be common. Now, let's let's look at this in verses 10 through 14. This is how the Lord evangelized her. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of, of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now, Jesus used the analogy of physical water, which was necessary to sustain physical life. It is especially uh, necessary in a, a hot desert land like, like Israel. 
But he used that to convey that he could give her living water, which would sustain her not temporarily and not physically, but eternally and spiritually. And that, that's really what he's saying. In other words, he was speaking about eternal salvation. I could give you water. I could give you something that would quench your thirsty soul. Eternal water, eternal salvation. But you know what? She didn't understand. She didn't comprehend that he was talking about her spiritual rather than her physical needs. So she responds in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I'll not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. Give me something so it'll quench my thirst and I don't have to take this long trek out here with these buckets and carry water back. Now, it's at this point that the story really becomes interesting. Since this woman did not understand her need for spiritual transformation, Jesus did what every one of us should do when evangelizing an individual. He showed her her need for salvation by bringing to her attention a specific sin that needed to be forgiven. Because after all, the gospel is about our sins being forgiven. If we don't know uh, that we're sinners, we'll never want to come to Christ for salvation. Notice verse 16. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Jesus told her, go get your husband, come here and we'll talk. Now, why did he say that? I want you to know he was putting his finger on a major moral sin in her life. Why do I say that? Let's see what verses 17 and 18 say. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. This woman was sexually loose. She had been married five times and was presently living with a man she was not married to, and Jesus just nailed her. Now, what is she going to do? She's been exposed as an adulteress, as a fornicator. What is she going to do? She does what many people do when they're convicted of their sin. They change the subject. (laughs) Verses 19 and 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. In essence, she said, you sound like a very religious man. So let's talk about religion. What do you think is the best church for worshipping God? That's in essence what she was saying. Where do you think it's best to go to church? Now, John Piper, in his very good book, Desiring God, has a real insightful comment on what our Lord did here and her response to to the Lord. He said, now, watch the universal reflex of a person trying to avoid conviction. She has to admit that he has extraordinary insight, but instead of going the direction he pointed, she tries to switch over to an academic controversy about his position on the best place to worship God. He writes, a trapped animal will chew off its own leg to escape. A trapped sinner will mangle her own mind and rip up the rules of logic. Why, yes, as long as we're talking about my adultery, what is your stance on the issue of where people should worship? He says, this is standard evasive double talk for trapped sinners, end of quote. So what she's trying to do is shift the attention away from her sin to a theological discussion about the right place of worship. She doesn't want to talk about her adultery. She wants to change the subject. And you know what? Jesus doesn't press the issue here. Why? 
She already knows she's a sinner. He's made his point. She's aware of her sin. So since she has brought up the subject of worship, Jesus just continues to pursue her by telling her that her worship is unacceptable to God. She needs to become a true worshiper of God. And he tells her this in verses 21 through 24. Let me read it to you, and then we're going to get into this. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, meaning you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, meaning we Jews, worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth." In these verses, Jesus specifically expresses what God considers unacceptable worship and what he considers acceptable worship. This is how you and I are to evaluate ourselves. And as I see this passage, I see it being broken down into three principles Jesus gave about acceptable worship. And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write it, write it out. The first principle is the place of worship. That's, that's where, that's the where of where, where should we worship? The second principle is the proper balance of worship. That's the how of worship. How do we worship God? And the third principle is the person or the object of worship. To whom do we direct our worship? Now, let's begin by looking at the first principle that Jesus taught about acceptable worship. And it's this. Acceptable worship is not confined to a sacred place. This is the where of worship. Where should we worship? It is not confined to a sacred place. The woman presented Jesus with a question about the best place to worship God, recognizing that Jesus was a prophet. She wanted him to solve an ancient theological dispute. She wanted to know the right location to worship God. Was it where the Samaritans said, which was on Mount Gerizim, they had a temple there? Or was it in the temple in Jerusalem where the Jewish people said it was the right place to worship? And what was our Lord's answer? Let's read now that you understand what's going on. Verse 21 again. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, meaning Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem, meaning the Temple Mount area, will you worship the Father. Now, Jesus clearly told her that the place of worship was unimportant. That's what he's saying. It's not important. Why? Because he said in a little while, meaning following his death and resurrection, sacred places of worship would be eliminated. They'd be eliminated. In fact, in just a few years, the entire city of Jerusalem with its temple would be destroyed. The temple has never been rebuilt. The city has been rebuilt, but the temple has never been rebuilt. Now, the question that we need to to grapple with for a moment is why did Jesus say that the place of worship is unimportant, especially in light of the fact that God told the Jewish people to build a temple in Jerusalem? That was to be the place of worship. And now Jesus is coming along and saying that soon it's unimportant. Soon it's unimportant. What's, What's the answer? The answer is that the purpose of the temple was to provide a place of worship uh, for God, by you would worship God by offering an animal sacrifice. That was why they had a temple. You came and you offered animal sacrifices. Uh, that's why today the Jewish people do not have animal sacrifices. There are some fringe extreme groups that have that, but for the most part, they, they don't because you can't have sacrifices without a, a temple. See, the temple and those sacrifices were merely pictures signs, pictures pointing to the coming of the perfect 
sacrifice, the perfect lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Once Jesus died on the cross as our sacrifice, there was no more need for any more sacrifices. Therefore, there's no more need for a temple. You don't need a temple. You don't need sacrifices. You don't need pictures once the reality is there. Once, once the reality is with you, you don't look at the photographs. You look at the person who's, who's real. That's, that's what this is about. We're so glad you've been with us today. I hope you've been able to understand that God is not looking to confine us to a specific place or time of worship. That ended with Jesus' death and resurrection. We have an open invitation to worship wherever Jesus is. You've been listening to Verse by Verse. If you would like more information about this ministry or would like to receive a copy of this message, please call us at 727 727- 239-0306 or go to our website versebyverseradio.org While you're on our website you can sign up for our newsletter download broadcasts and even see how to designate a financial gift to help this ministry Our goal is to communicate the truth of God's word in clear language. We are thankful for people like you who make this broadcast possible For the whole team, this is Jerry Pruden asking you to tune in next time on Verse by Verse. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's Verse by... We are here to give you strength between...